0: Today we will be speaking with Antonia Di Maio, who currently holds the Chief of Human Rights and Rule of Law Service position at the UNSMIL, And she is the representative of the Office High Commissioner of Human Rights for Libya. She's based at Tripoli, Libya. Thank you for taking the time to speak with us. If you don't mind, I would like to start by asking, what is it that you do in those positions that you hold?
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to be here and to have a chance to talk about the work that I do. Um, In the work for UNSMIL and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, we focus on human rights monitoring and reporting. And we also support key Libyan institutions in the rule of law sector.
0: I see. And what made you devote a career in the UN? What did you do to make that happen once you figured out that you wanted that?
1: So I came overseas about 20 years ago on the recommendation of a mentor of mine uh, and I was working in international development and I found that I was really passionate about rule of law and human rights and I thought that by joining the UN I would find a more stable part of the international development field. So that was one of the reasons why I geared towards the UN, although I already had the commitment to rule of law and human rights. Uh, I also felt that the UN would provide a platform where I would be able to reach a wider audience and make an impact on more vulnerable people, which I was looking to do.
0: And what has been your most rewarding experience at the UN so far?
1: So I think the most rewarding thing for me has really been the people that I've worked with, both in terms of the dedicated colleagues and also really passionate people in the countries that I've served in. And one of the highlights for me was working with youth in Sri Lanka. And this was in 2014, and I worked with my partners in the UN to establish the first ever UN Youth Advisory Panel. And we had a selection process, it was a youth-led process, and we selected 15 youth uh, to serve on the first UN Youth Advisory Panel. And I've kept in touch with many of these people. They're really fabulous, impressive people, and they give me a lot of hope for the future. And one of them actually has become a mentee of mine and was able to attend my alma mater in the United States. And she actually is graduating this month. I'm super proud of her. Um, and she was actually selected to be class speaker at graduation. So it's really been a success story of being able to meet someone very exciting in a country like Sri Lanka and kind of see her life flourish.
0: I see, yeah, that's very interesting. And what was the what do you think is the biggest challenge of both positions that you hold currently?
1: So if I look at the substantive side of my work uh, it definitely is challenging to gain access to the victims of human rights violations in Libya in order to be able to carry out our human rights monitoring reporting and advocacy work. The security situation is very complicated uh, and it's very difficult to reach large portions of the country and sometimes being able to have a conversation with someone could possibly put them at risk So it's very hard to gain access. In addition to that, if I look at the sort of management side of my work, of course, the subject matter of the human rights work in Libya is very grim and very sober. And that's challenging. And it creates a challenge to look out for the welfare of my team. I have an absolutely fabulous team, but it's important to me to consider people's welfare. And the way that we do that within the confines of the UN rules and regulations can be challenging. I think that there is a huge need for UN reform in order to be able to better look after the health and welfare of staff who are on the front lines doing human rights work in places like Libya.
0: I see. And you've reached a very senior position in your career. It's impressive. You must have had expectations before reaching such levels. Did the reality match up with the expectations?
1: So one of my main expectations when I joined the UN 10 years ago was that I thought that the UN would provide a stable system, a stable platform in which to pursue my passion for human rights and rule of law. Unfortunately, over the last 20 years, the UN has become a less and less stable organization due to a variety of factors. And many of the reforms that have been implemented in the UN, in my opinion, have negatively impacted staff and the daily work environment. So from the perspective of stability, the UN has not met my expectations. But that said, I am committed to the mandates that I have served in the various jobs that I've had in the UN, and there really is not another place that I could work and have the opportunity to serve those types of mandates. And I've learned how to cope with the kind of inherent instability that exists within the UN system.
0: Mm, That's very interesting that you mentioned, you pointed that out. Um, What would you advise a mid-career individual who dreams of fighting for human rights around the world?
1: Sure. So on the practical side, it's really important to have a master's degree, and it has to be called master's, M-A-S-T-E-R. The recruitment system of the UN is very complicated, and if you don't have a degree that very obviously meets the requirements of a professional posting, your likelihood of being able to get a job is much reduced. So you have to have a degree that's a master's degree. Of course, if you want to do human rights work, it's best if that degree is in law or in human rights or something similar to that. Uh, It's also very helpful if you speak a minimum of two UN languages and if you have field experience.
0: In in your career, I'm sorry to interrupt, in your career, for instance, your individual case, was there any crucial decision from your career that had a quite big impact on you reaching those levels?
1: Sure, so first of all, it was a crucial decision that I went back to school to get a second master's degree. I already had a Juris Doctor degree, but I wasn't getting anywhere in the UN. I wasn't getting any calls for interviews. And someone within the UN advised me that they simply didn't know what a JD was. She said, you have to have something called a master's degree. And so I went back to school for a year and I got a master's degree. And by the time I graduated, I had three offers from the UN. So nothing else about me had changed other than the fact that I now had something on my CV called M-A-S-T-E-R. Now, mind you, my JD is a higher degree than the master's degree, but the UN didn't really know how to recognize that. So that was something that was very critical for me. The other thing that's been, I think, important for me is that I'm very practical. So if I'm in a job and I realize that I'm not going to be able to make a difference or an impact in that job for whatever reason, I mean, there can be all sorts of things that change in the country in the structure where you're working, whatever, then I actively pursue other opportunities. I'm not someone who sits in an unsatisfying or unrewarding job and just waits for things to improve. I take action to move on, and I think that's really important. I've heard a lot of people in the UN say that they wait for someone to invite them to apply for a job, and I really strongly advise that you do not take that attitude that you take your career into your own hands and that you pursue opportunities and actually seek out tips on how you can improve your knowledge on the UN recruitment process, which is very complicated. And my last point, which I think has been very critical, is that you have to be willing to take challenging positions in field locations. If your aim is to sit in New York and Geneva um, and have a sort of nice life in a big cosmopolitan city, then this probably is not the line of work for you. Um, The place where you're really going to make a difference is in the field, and you have to be willing to take on those challenges, and that will definitely push your career forward.
0: And talking about that, how has it been for you working in Tripoli?
1: Sure. So Tripoli is a challenging duty station. Uh, I've had quite a number of challenging duty stations, but I will say that Tripoli is probably the most challenging. It is challenging because it's unpredictable and dynamic from a security perspective. Um, in addition to that, Libya is extremely complex due to a weak, unstable government, a proliferation of armed groups that exercise influence over parts of the government. And in this case, we're talking about literally hundreds of armed groups. So, you know, in Syria, you have a number of armed groups that make Syria complicated. In Libya, it's multiplied in terms of the number of armed groups that you're having to deal with and that dynamic of the security sector considerations. Uh, The other thing that's been challenging in Tripoli is that in Tripoli, we live and work in a UN compound for security reasons, and it's a very confined UN compound. There is no green zone around us, for example, as exists in Iraq. You're really just on the compound. So you need to be able to deal with the challenges of confined living.
0: I see, and what would you advise to workers in this field to help them not carry over the emotional effects of their work into their personal lives? Hey there, the rest of this podcast is exclusively for Impactful Fellows. Upgrade now and accelerate your career.